Welcome, I'm Rose Aguilar, and this is your Calls Media Roundtable. We begin today's show by discussing the death of Russian activist and Putin critic Alexei Navalny. He was just 47. Russian officials say he died in prison after collapsing and losing consciousness. Navalny supporters and world leaders say he was assassinated by Vladimir Putin's oppressive regime. We'll also discuss the crackdown on independent media in Azerbaijan. Today, we're joined by Ilya Lavosky, a staff writer and senior editor at the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. He's based in Sarajevo. The OCCRP is a nonprofit mission-driven newsroom whose mission is to spread and strengthen investigative journalism around the world and expose crime and corruption so the public can hold power to account. OCCRP journalists, including Ilya Lavosky, have written several stories about Alexei Navalny. Hi, Ilya. Thanks so much for joining us again. Hi. Excuse me. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. We're also joined by Slava Abramov, Central Asian editor at the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project and founder of Vlast KZ, an independent online magazine covering politics, economy, and social issues. Hi, Slava. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, Rose. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Well, first, I want to get your response to this breaking news about Alexei Navalny. Ilya, you wrote a 2020 piece about Alexei Navalny, which we'll talk about in a minute. But first of all, what is your reaction? Uh, Russian officials say he died in prison. Navalny supporters and many others around the world say he was assassinated by Putin's oppressive regime. Yeah, well, it's shocking. Um, Everyone who is following Russia has followed Russia, has followed Navalny for years uh, I think many Putin opponents uh, from Russia are really in despair right now. I'm seeing everyone's social media posts and people are really asking, what? how do we move forward? What can we do? Um, there's a lot of things you can say about Navalny, and I guess we'll talk about that. But on just the question of his death, we don't know exactly what happened in that prison colony. But I think it's absolutely correct to say that he was murdered by the Russian state, whether through something that happened today that we don't know about or through a slow deterioration in his health that has been observed over months. And of course, he's being kept in horrific conditions on completely trumped up charges because he's dared to oppose Putin in a way that few others have. And his lawyer is on his way to the prison. It is, it's a jail about 40 miles north of the Arctic Circle. That's where he's been sentenced well, or was sentenced to 19 years in prison. Uh, Yeah, he was moved there from another prison that was closer to Moscow. His supporters think it was to prevent him from communicating with his family, his lawyer and others, um, because he liked to continue to use social media to get um, his point of view out. You know, he never gave up on trying to show Russians what kind of regime they were living in and the corruption that was surrounding them every day. Even when he returned to Russia on what ended up being the last day of freedom he would ever have in 2021, on that same day, his organization published their latest investigation into the mass massive wealth that Putin has um, amassed in Russia. And this is really his bread and butter. This is where he got started years ago, long before he was a politician or an activist of any kind. He was posting on his live journal about corruption, about the Olympics. And this is really how he earned the trust of so many people. He was really an investigator. He wouldn't call himself a journalist. You know, I don't think many people would call him impartial in any way. 
But he, I think, did more than anyone else to get across to the Russian people and to the world that, as he liked to call it, Putin and his party are a party of crooks and thieves. And um, even many people who support Putin probably wouldn't uh, dispute that characterization of Russia. Mm. Slava, what would you like to add? What, what was your response when you heard this news? You know, it's, it was, it was not something that I, I can say was not like fully expected because like many people said three years ago when Navalny decided to come back to Russia that something like that can happen to him. But of course, it's hard to, to believe that, um, he was killed in, 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 in prison and, um, he's gone because he, he was, uh, he was, of course, like very, very strong personality. And of course, it was a lot of people who didn't like him. But I do believe that he brought to Russia, you know, like very, some very important uh, political messages. And he brought a lot of attention to politics in, in, in Russia in general. And um, unfortunately for me, it also means that Russia... Uh, will not change in a, like, in a close future, you know, because if Kremlin is ready to kill their main enemies, it means that it's ready for everyone, uh, everything. Mm. Ilya, can you remind us why Putin and Russia was so threatened by Navalny? In the 2020 piece you wrote called How Alexei Navalny Exposed Russian Corruption, you wrote, though he's best known outside the country as an opposition politician, his most enduring legacy may be as the producer of an unorthodox but highly effective brand of investigative journalism. You touched on this earlier, but can you tell us more about this? Yeah, so Navalny is kind of a master communicator um, and his team, he had a pretty large team, the Anti-Corruption Foundation, produced these extremely compelling video investigations on YouTube. This is where he reached the largest audiences, where he used humor and wit and sarcasm and very plain, simple language, but also very compelling proof, you know, showing documents on the screen, drawing corporate charts on the screen, really presenting all the proof in a way that we as investigative journalists always try to do to show Russians how their elite and especially their political elite had enriched themselves at the expense of the common people. And he did, you know, any top official probably that you could name in Russia, he's probably done something about them, about a former president and prime minister Medvedev, about the son of the press secretary. I mean, you about uh, so many other top officials and he exposed their riches inside Russia, outside Russia, castle mansions and castles and properties and yachts and everything. And he's just really good at this. Navalny, he, his team was really great at making these really slick and compelling investigations. And as investigative journalists, you know, we always try to, we always try trying to strike that balance between presenting all the evidence, building a strong case and making it compelling, something that an ordinary person would actually be interested in reading or viewing. And Navalny was really good at that. And he reached really massive, massive audiences with this. And he had a real, sh this is what he parlayed this um, legitimacy and popularity into his political career. You know, he tried to run for mayor of Moscow. He tried to run for a president, but the authorities always put so many roadblocks in his way. It was impossible. And then, of course, the 
trumped up legal case that landed him in prison. But he really, I think, did more than anything else to expose what kind of massive, massive theft the entire Russian state is built on. What does this now mean for the opposition in Russia? Well, there's not much of an opposition left in Russia, I think. Um, what can you say? I mean, he was the most famous face and he was in prison already. Um, it was super brave of him to come back. But, you know, especially since the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, you know, the everyone left who was really an opponent of Putin is either... They've either left the country, they've been imprisoned, they've been silenced, they've been cowed into silence. And um, I really... It's hard to imagine that any change would come from within Russia right now. It's simply nobody has yet cracked the code of how to defeat this kind of dictatorship with full media control, full control of all institutions, education, I mean, everything. So I think that, I mean, you know, Navalny's wife spoke today in Munich at the security conference and she said it was a really moving, you know, ad hoc speech, the short speech she gave where she said, I want Putin to be held accountable. And for me... It's hard to imagine anyone in the world, any force in the world that can hold Putin accountable now other than the armed forces of Ukraine. Um, so I think that this certainly puts certain political um, discussions taking place in the United States right now in a fresh light. Slava, what do you think this message sends to uh, the well, what is left of the opposition in Russia, but also you cover other authoritarian regimes. What message do you think this sends to, you know, people, dissidents, journalists, people who are standing up in other authoritarian countries? You know, it's um, it's it's hard to say, and I totally agree with Ilya that uh, you know, like someone visible left in in Russia at the moment and is not in. In, in, in prison, you know, because like we, we can talk about Vladimir Karamurza and Ilya Yashin and many others who already imprisoned for many, many years and who is at risk, of course, as well as, uh, Alexei was. And, um, it's, it's pretty much same everywhere around Russia because we can talk about Belarus and crackdown uh, of uh, opposition and civil society there after protests in 2020. We can talk about my home country, Kazakhstan, where several political prisoners just started their uh, terms in, in jail. And we can talk about our colleagues in Kyrgyzstan who was detained um, and then arrested uh, just a few weeks ago. And I'm talking about 11 journalists who, uh, investigative reporters who were arrested by, by, by Kyrgyz government. Um, this message is like very clear. It's, um, it's, it's what all autocrats want us to know. We need to be in fear. We need to be afraid, not only to be like jailed, arrested, uh, but also we need to be in fear for our lives. But you know, it's, it's, it's the only way to do this job. What, what you are doing as investigative reporter or what, what, what you are doing as a, civil activist or politician, you need to continue to do your job. And this is, it was a message of Navalny for, for like three years ago when he decided to return to Russia or before that or after that, he always said one thing, um, you need to continue and you need to fight. And it's the, it's the same, same thing that we need to say to ourselves here in this part of the world. 
and to all the people in in other places where um, human rights defenders and journalists and politicians are in danger because because their government are corrupt and um, want to want to kill the civil society. Slava, in December 2022, you wrote a piece for the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project called Kazakhstan Detains Famous Investigative Reporter. You wrote about Mikhail Kozachov. And then last August, I'm sorry, last May, you and your colleagues wrote a piece called Kazakhstan Has Become a Pathway for the Supply of Russia's War Machine. Here's how it works. Can you tell us what it's been like for you to report on these issues and your colleagues. You know, I'm, I'm doing this job for like 25, I believe years. So for me, it's, uh, it's a very normal thing to be, to be a bit afraid because of what I am doing, but at the same time to do what, what, what I am doing, because it's, it's very important in case of, uh, this investigation that you are talking about, about, uh, drones, Ilya was, Ilya Lazovsky was, uh, an editor of this investigation. So we did this piece together and we did it with our brave colleagues, um, from Russia who are in exile because they cannot do their job in Russia right now. So it's, it was a joint effort to, to do what, what is important to do in this case to, show the world how many countries around Russia and not only Kazakhstan, but also China and Georgia and Armenia and Turkey are used by Russians to get some very important equipment or to get some dual used good goods or something like that. So it's, it's our duty to do, to do this job. If we know something and we, 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 um, we, we got some information. We, we need to expose it. We need to, um, to do some very, very important reporting, not only to stop these processes. And in this case, it was like very clear. We, we are doing this investigation because we don't want, um, Kazakhstan to be used for that. Um, but also we, we really hope that all these investigations will bring Lie to some very important facts, including the facts that some Western companies, some yeah, European Union-based companies, some U.S. companies are involved in all these schemes, and it it also needs to be stopped. To see the the war in Ukraine stopped, we need to stop all these schemes used by Russia and dictatorships around Russia. Slava Abramov is the Central Asian Editor at the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. It's one of the largest investigative journalism organizations in the world. He's also founder of Vlast.kz, an independent online magazine covering politics, the economy, and social issues. Ilya Lazovsky is a staff writer and senior editor of the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. He writes about corruption and democracy. He also edits investigations. We initially invited Ilya and Slava on to talk about the crackdown on independent media in Azerbaijan. And then, of course, when we woke up this morning, we got the news of the death of the Russian activist and Putin critic Alexei Navalny. Russian officials say he died in prison after collapsing and losing consciousness. Navalny supporters and people 
people around the world say he was assassinated by Putin's oppressive, oppressive regime. Let's talk about the crackdown on independent media and Azerbaijan. As of January 25th, at least 11 Azerbaijani media workers remain behind bars due to their work. According to the International Press Institute, the report says the entire media sector is under official control and state-owned television is the most popular information source. No independent television or radio is transmitted from within the country and all print newspapers with a critical stance have been shut down. Most of the independent news sites targeted by state censorship are based abroad. Ilya, I I have to ask you this first question because so much of our news in the United States is dominated by Donald Trump and the election. It's 24-7. So for people who might not know about what is happening in Azerbaijan, can you just give us a thumbnail sketch of of the authoritarian regime in Azerbaijan? Uh, sure. So Azerbaijan is uh, a dictatorship. It is absolute ab- absolute dictatorship led by uh, President Ilham Aliyev. And uh, just like in Russia, as we were talking about, this is a place where they have uh, massive energy resources and wealth. And Aliyev and his family have benefited enormously from that wealth. We've done a huge amount of reporting over the years about their r- real estate empire that the... Uh, president's family and their associates have built in London $700 million worth of property through shell companies. There's uh, 20 stories probably we could tell about how they've enriched themselves around the world. At home, uh, you know, as is typical, most ordinary Azerbaijani citizens have not benefited to a large extent from their country's oil wealth. And they're living in a place where when you have an election, uh, in one famous incident in 2013, I believe the results of the elect presidential election announcing Aliyev's victory were actually published accidentally before the voting even started. So this is a place where even in comparison to Russia, the elections are completely fake. They just had one. And in advance of that election, um, to celebrate a recent military victory against Armenia, uh, they had a wave of crackdown against journalists, including investigative journalists like ourselves who were investigating things like crackdowns on environmental protests, torture in Azerbaijani prisons and other topics. And these are very young journalists who are very brave because this is a very, very dangerous country already to do journalism. And now they're sitting in prison. And it's not just journalists. There are also um, trade union activists. And there's an academic, um, Gubadi Badolu, who is um, in prison and in risk in his life because he's diabetic. And uh, his family says he's being mistreated. So this is absolutely a classic dictatorship, but one that takes a lot of pains to promote itself in the West as a reliable partner, energy partner, ally, friend of Israel. Um, There's a lot of lobbying that goes on. You know, members of U.S. Congress have traveled to Azerbaijan on uh, trips sponsored by an oil company, the state oil company. There have been bribes that we've investigated paid to European politicians to say that their human rights situation is fine. So this is a country that actually cares about its image. And as Russia has become sort of uh, persona non grata, you know, Europeans don't want to buy Russian gas and oil anymore. Now they're turning to Azerbaijan and Aliyev is selling his country as a great and reliable energy partner. But of course, uh, I would say, you know, there's not much of a moral difference between buying gas from a Russian state company or an Azerbaijani company. Mm. Slava, what would you like to add about what we should know about Azerbaijan? 
Um, not, not, not a lot, to be honest. It's uh, you're absolutely right and correct. Uh, it's a, it's a very typical um, South Caucasian uh, slash Central Asian dictatorship of totalitarian country. Um, unfortunately, we we saw a lot of you know like games around um, political prisoners in this country. These games were played by Alexander Lukashenko in Belarus forever by many others in, in this region when before some important um, negotiations or visits, some political prisons are free and then we see a new wave of political prisoners coming to um, jail, to pre-trial detentions. We have some hopes that uh, some of our colleagues in Azerbaijan will be free after these unfair elections that happened just um, a week ago in, in Azerbaijan. But of course we need to bring much more light to to the countries like like this one or the, the my neighboring country Kyrgyzstan I already said a word about that we have we have a crackdown there because um, like two to our partners in this country very small and unfortunately very poor country um, to 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 our partners there, club.kg. Uh, it's an independent outlet that worked for 16 years, I believe. It was it was closed by court this week because um, authoritarian leader in this country decided that he doesn't need independent media anymore. And before that, a month ago, 11 investigative reporters in this country who. Uh, former and current employers of uh, Timir of Life, small investigative outlet, were imprisoned because um, government saying that they tried to inflame um, mass riots in the country, which is, of course, um, absurd and um, some some very very strange statement that you can say about journalists, but. It is what it is, and it is what's what's happening, unfortunately, in this in this region. Ilya, you wrote a piece about thirty-four-year-old Savinge. I'm sorry if I get her name wrong. Uh, Vaki Kwizi, uh, who was arrested. She's an independent journalist. Uh, you have a long piece about just what journalism means to her. She's now in jail along with five colleagues and dozens of other critics of Azerbaijan's authoritarian government. Can you tell us more about her? Uh, yeah, she is someone who has written for us before at OCCRP. Uh, she, uh, she's really um, talented young journalist. She had a case already that we reported on a few years ago where her phone was hacked by uh, Israeli spyware that appears to have been employed by the Azerbaijani regime, so they've gone after her before. They have a long and nasty history in Azerbaijan of breaking into journalist phones. And this is the kind of spyware where it's not like someone sends you a malicious link and you click on it. This is something where you don't even see it happening at all. You know, your phone just gets compromised. It's that advanced that you don't have to click anything or do anything. And they can get your personal messages, whatever, you know, very personal things you have, and they are not above blackmailing Um women especially, and releasing intimate photos that they find as a way of shaming them because it's a fairly conservative society. I'll just add that this kind of thing happens in Kyrgyzstan, this, the country Slava was just talking about. Also, we've had this tactic used against female journalists um, as a way of compromising them and coercing them into uh, cooperating with the authorities. Mm -hmm. So this is what young women like Savinj have to deal with 
when they choose to become independent journalists in this country. But she, she, you know, she says she's always wanted to be a journalist. It's all she's ever dreamed of doing. When she was applying to university, she wrote, you know, in Azerbaijan, you had to list your top 10 choices of where you want to study. And she told us she, um, on all 10, she wrote the same thing 10 times. She wrote, I want to study at the School of Journalism at Baku State University. She got in, she did journalism, but she became, unlike many of her colleagues, she had the bravery uh, to become independent and to report on corruption and whistleblowers and what's really going on in the country. And she also, um, actually kind of like Navalny, you know, she returned deliberately to Azerbaijan after knowing that she would be arrested because she was abroad. Uh, she was, I believe, in Istanbul when she got news that her boss had been arrested back in Azerbaijan. This was in uh, December, I believe. And um, she knew that this was a crackdown. She knew the authorities were had, uh, planted some cash in the offices of the organization to accuse them of smuggling. Um, but she decided to come back and she said, I can't be abroad. You know, I can't be hanging out in Paris or Istanbul or anywhere else when my colleagues and friends are in prison. So she went back and she was imprisoned and there were many, many others. And that's just one outlet called Abzas Media that we focused on in our, I focused on in my story because they are investigators just like us, but there are, you know, other journalists from other outlets who are also in prison. And as I said, there's an academic, there's other activists, there's whistleblowers. This is, um, you know, specialists on Azerbaijan are calling this the third crackdown under Ilham Aliyev. There were several waves before. This one is probably one of the most serious and it's really taking the country in a very dark direction. Is there any way to know how uh, these reporters like Savinj and others and the dissidents and the whistleblowers and the activists who are in jail, any way to know how they're being treated? Sort of. Uh, currently, I believe there's no communication with them directly. Uh, they do have access to their lawyers. Um, so sometimes you can hear from their lawyers how they're doing. Uh, as far as we know, one of the journalists at least was beaten when on their arrest. But they also use a lot of other tricks. You know, I was talking to the son, uh, this academic, this economist that I mentioned, Gubadi Badolu. He was in a, he lives in the UK. Uh, you know, he's taught at very prestigious universities in London and in the US. And he's done a lot of work on exposing the corruption of uh, the Aliyev regime. He went back to Azerbaijan just to visit his elderly mother and he was arrested there and charged with the same ridiculous smuggling of foreign currency charge except in his case they charge him with smuggling forty thousand dollars and in the case of the journalist it was forty thousand euros but you can see they're using the same tactic against him mm -hmm. and he is quite ill i spoke to his son and he told me that he did get a few opportunities to chat with his father by phone from jail but his father just doesn't say anything negative and he says everything is fine and he says it's his son told me it's clear that the authorities are there in the room with him and they're not prevent they're preventing him from speaking out about how he's really being treated. But through other sources, through his lawyer, they know that his health is really in dire straits and the authorities, they say, are not providing him with the medication and medical treatment that he needs. Slava, what actually helps these people in jail? Do social media campaigns work? Do pressure from media rights organizations work? Or are they effective it's a combination. at all? Yeah, it's a, it's a combination of things, Rose. And sometimes we do not expect that, you know, like, uh, small talks about these cases uh, can help, but but they 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 do sometimes they help. You know, um, I'm I'm saying that we need to raise attention, we need to bring light, all that stuff because we saw 
several examples. You know, when when our colleagues was de- detained, arrested, jailed, and in, in countries like like Azerbaijan, and we can we can talk about case of Hadija Smailova, our brave colleague in, from Azerbaijan, who was jailed and sentenced uh, for seven years in prison, and then she was freed. You know, because of huge international campaign that was organized by by our organization by OCCRP. And we, what we tried to do, we tried to send this message. You can arrest one journalist, but dozens of journalists around the world will, will come to his place and will continue his or her job. This is what we are doing right now in Azerbaijan, where a bunch of our colleagues arrested. We are continuing their job. Uh, we are continuing their investigations. The same thing we are doing in Kyrgyzstan, and I hope that in in March we will we will show what what we are ready to 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 show not only to Kyrgyzstan but also to the world because many many journalists from around the world are joining this effort to to send this important message to Kyrgyz government. But at the same time, we need to call for action and in some cases for statements from. From U.S., from from European Union, from all the countries that call themselves democracies and who can help in this in this situation, and of course, a lot of attention from media organizations, human rights organizations, and our media can help in this situation too. It, just a couple of days ago, the OCCRP reported that amid a widening crackdown on the free press in Kyrgyzstan, a local court ordered the award-winning local member center Kloop Media to be shut down. The purported reason for the order was that Kloop was practicing journalism without a license. Prosecutors presented testimony from psychiatrists who accused the outlet of affecting people's mental health by upsetting them with negative information. Wow. Uh, what can you tell us about this, Slava? It sounds kind of like a movie. Yeah, it's it's the level of absurdity, you know, in, in, in all these cases, sometimes it's like it's shocking, you know, because you cannot even believe that something like that can happen, that like a real psychiatrist, will come to the court and will say like public out loud that yes, your publication is, you know, like ending up putting people in like bad mood or like negative way of thinking, something like that. But unfortunately this is what what's happening, you know. It's clear in 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 the case of clock.kg, this media, it's very clear that government of Kyrgyzstan is sending message to the, to all independent media that left in the country that we will treat you this way because we don't care what the world will think, what the society will think. Kyrgyzstan is a small country, experienced three revolutions in the past 20 years and was very well known, you know, to like academics and people, people who are interested in Central Asia as maybe not a sustainable but democratic state. And unfortunately, what we are seeing in the past three years is is like um, uh, an effort of current president Sadir Japarov to control the country as much as he can and to close civil society. This case and the, the absurdity around this case is just a demonstration of his power to to the society and to the world. Fortunately, you know, 
Yeah. Oh, no, I was just going to say what's amazing about this is uh, mm-hmm. the OCCRP reports that Kloop Media operates Kloop.kg, an investigative reporting outlet that has done unprecedented work to expose organized crime and corruption in Kyrgyzstan and Central Asia. And according to OCCRP editor-in-chief Miranda Petruchic, Kloop started with brave teenage journalists who broke the story of how the Kyrgyzstan's president family had financial control over the telecommunications industry. She said, think about that. Teenagers taking on corrupt practices in a powerful government. They wanted a better future and continue to push for it now through truthful journalism. I mean, Slava, that, that's incredible that Kloop was started by teenage journalists. Yeah, and to, to founders, they to, to founders of Club, they were like 19, I believe, they when they established this organization themselves, you know, and later the, the guy who was 17, he became editor-in-chief of this, this media outlet and he stayed on this position for 10 years. So he, he grew up together with these, these media. It's an amazing, amazing example of like growing journalism, you know, and they invested so much efforts into into like developing of of journalism and um, that's why you know it's it's so important to 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 pay attention to this for us you know because this organization declared in their charter that they their main goal is developing journalism and the court decided that developing journalism doesn't mean that you can do journalism that you can do media so they they accused them of not having license but they had in their charter this important thing and the, like important goal developing a journalism and i they did this amazing job they developed a journalism in in the whole country in in 6 million uh country but Unfortunately, you know their work right now is in danger. They they also sent like sent this message, important message to the Kyrgyz society and to the world. They want to continue and they will, but being in exile or you know work in conditions when it's almost impossible to to work is extremely hard. You know the so we 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 really don't know if it will be even possible for them to operate in in a very close future. Wow. Really incredible story. Slava Abramov is the Central Asian editor at the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project and founder of Vlast.kz, an independent online magazine. Ilya Lazovsky is a staff writer and senior editor at the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project based in Sarajevo. Slava and Ilya, thank you so much for your important work, and we'd love to have you back to continue this important discussion. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You can find out more about all of the stories we discussed today and the very important work of the OCCRP at yourcallradio.org. Coming up after a break, we will talk about and continue our discussion about the loss of local news and media layoffs in the United States. This is Your Call's Media Roundtable. We'll be back after this.